The following audio is from Community Bible Church in Nashville, Tennessee. For more information about our church, please visit us online at cbcnashville.org. Present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. You can be seated. If you have your Bibles with you, I'd encourage you to turn to John chapter 20. It'll be our text for this morning. But before we get there, I just want to mention a couple things. First off, if you are uh, not attending our Sunday school class, I would really, really, really encourage you to come uh, to the adult Sunday school class at 9 a.m. this morning. Sheldon uh, was teaching us that a healthy church member is a is gospel saturated and Sheldon I, I felt like plunged us into the depths of the gospel so that we could soak it up. It was it was encouraging just to sit under the teaching of the gospel uh, this morning. So I would really encourage you to come out uh, to our Sunday school, Sunday school class. Also, before uh, we get into our text this morning, I wanted to just uh, pray for. A couple members of our congregation. Uh, first um, is Larry and Vinette Stack. Larry hasn't um, shared this with the whole congregation yet, but Larry is needing to have open heart surgery this Wednesday. Um, so we definitely want to be praying for Larry and Vinette. Uh, if you think about it, uh, Wednesday at 11 is when the surgery is scheduled. Uh, so please be praying for Larry and Vanette Stack. And then I also want to pray for uh, the Hall family. Uh, Courtney Litz is a Hall. She's my wife. But Alan, uh, my father-in-law, is up in Indiana right now with his father who had a stroke this week. And, and he's 91 years old. Uh, if you want to say he's lived a, to a ripe old age. But the main prayer request for him is his salvation. He, has, especially over the last few years, um, last handful of years, is, um, as we'll look today in our text about Thomas, he's obstinate in his unbelief. He hears about Christ and wants nothing to do with Christ. So I want to pray for Alan especially, and for uh, 
other members of the family who are believers uh, that even now, as it seems that he's on his deathbed, that they would be able to share anew the gospel of Jesus Christ and that he would hear it with new ears and would come to saving faith. So let me pray for the stacks and for the halls. Father, we, we come before you this morning just with joy that you allow us to come before your throne and you call it a thr throne of grace. You invite us into your presence. You tell us to cast all our cares upon you because you are compassionate and you care for us. So we lift up this morning, Larry and Vanette Stack and the Stack family. I pray, Father, uh, that as Larry goes uh, in Wednesday for surgery, that you would just strengthen him physically. I pray that you would be with the surgeons and all, all, all the healthcare providers, that you would give them wisdom in exactly what needs to be done, that you would give them just the greatest of skill uh, to be able uh, to uh, successfully operate on Larry. I pray that this would uh, indeed resolve uh, the issues that he is facing. Father, even more than all of that, I pray that you would just use this, this trial in the stacks' lives, uh, this uh, just a time that I'm sure uh, is, um, can, be, can cause much fear and anxiety. I, I pray that you'd use this time to strengthen their faith and their hope in Christ. I pray that you would surround them with your love and comfort Help them to know even more clearly than maybe they've ever even known before the great love that you have loved them with. You did not even spare your own son, but gave him up even to death on a cross that they could call you father. I also lift up the Hall family and specifically I lift up Charles Hall as it seems that he is on his deathbed, that there is a short time left for him, Father. We know he is not yours. We know that he has very much seemingly embraced, Father, being an enemy of the gospel, an enemy of Christ. But you are a wonderful and loving Heavenly Father. And even as we'll see in your word this morning, I pray that you would graciously allow him to hear the gospel again. And that you would graciously open his eyes and open his ears to see the beauty of Jesus Christ and him crucified. And to know that he has no other hope, no other comfort in life and in death than in Jesus. And that he would call him his faithful savior. I pray also, just as we come before your word this morning, that you would help us to be attentive to, to your word. Even those of us who believe, Father, help our unbelief. 
Father, the, the seasons of doubt that we have, the, the heartache and the suffering that we have, I pray that you would just renew your spirit within us, fill us with joy, a joy that can only come from you. Father, strengthen me as I'm weak. I pray that you'd help me to teach your word faithfully, to be in full agreement with it, with you. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, we had a short break last week from John, but as you know, we've been working our way through the gospel of John, and we only have a couple weeks left. Uh, we, we have... Uh, this morning, and then next week, we will actually conclude, Lord willing, uh, the Gospel of John. It's been sweet just to give a little um, peek into um, weeks ahead. As, as I've been, as Brennan and I have been working through John and finishing it, one thought I've, I've kept having over uh, the last several months, and it's been nagging at me, and finally, this last week, I just said, okay, we're going to do this. It's like, well, what happens next? So we're going to take a, we're going to do a brief mini-series into Acts. Um, just to see what happened after this story. What happened with these disciples? As we'll see today, we're, we're fearful of the Jews, of the Jewish authorities hiding behind locked doors. And then... It's like, it seems pressing and important for us to turn the page from John to Acts and see these same disciples stand out in a crowd of people who had just crucified Jesus and proclaim the gospel and uh, rejoicing that they would be counted worthy to suffer for Christ. So I, I, I'm excited about looking ahead as we, as we consider Christ ascended, as we consider the, the, whole, the coming of the Holy Spirit, and as we look at the, that, that foundation of, of the church and the apostles' teaching and the communion and fellowship of, of the saints. But that's just a little peek ahead. In John, we have seen throughout the story John laying out an argument that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, laying out these signs that declare him to be exactly who he said he was. He's been laying all these things out. And as the disciples follow him, expecting him to be indeed the Christ, the Messiah, all of a sudden he's delivered over to the Jewish authorities and to the Gentile authorities. And he's beaten and crucified. And that is not what they expected that's not what they thought that their Messiah would be. They thought their Messiah would be a conquering hero, that he would displace the Roman authorities and, and take up his, his earthly throne. But that is not, it was not God's plan from the beginning. So as we've seen, Jesus was crucified between two thieves. He was laid in the tomb and last time, Brennan got to preach on the resurrection. And as Brennan mentioned, that's why we're gathered here. 
That is the very reason we are gathered here. And we'll look, it's the very reason we're gathered on Sunday. It's be, this is Resurrection Sunday every week. And we come together to worship our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, because he is raised. As, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus isn't raised, then we are the most to be pitied. We would be a group of fools to gather together every Sunday morning to sing these silly songs, to eat some bread and drink some grape juice, to baptize people, to, to preach from this book. We'd be fools and the world would be right to look upon us with pity. But Jesus is raised from the dead. And we're going to continue looking at that this morning. So if you have your Bibles open to the book of John, John chapter 20, we're going to be uh, looking at verses 19 through the end of the chapter. Let me read that for us. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were in sight again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Well, as I mentioned, we start first on the, the evening of this resurrection day, the day that Jesus rose from the dead. He had appeared to the women outside the tomb. They had come and given their report to the disciples. And as John says, now it's on the evening of that day, the first day of the week. So it's, it's still Sunday. And this is, this is significant as even as we look ahead, when Jesus here appears to the disciples, 
on Sunday, and then it says that he appears to them again eight days later. Well, the Jewish accounting of time, it's an inclusive counting of time. So it's, he appears to them even again on Sunday. This is when we say that Jesus rose on the third day or three days later. Well, you count like okay, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Normally we would say Saturday, Sunday. That's two days, right? But you, it's, you count inclusively Friday, Saturday, Sunday. That's the same way here. Jesus appears to them on a Sunday. Then he appears to them again on a Sunday. And this is, this is why John, the same John in Revelation 1, calls it the Lord's Day. We come together on the Lord's Day. Christ himself has set this pattern for us of worship that we come together to worship him. And the disciples at this time in this evening, they're, they're behind locked doors. They're afraid of the Jewish authorities. This is, as I said a moment ago, they, the, the Messiah, Jesus, the one that they thought would come to conquer the, the Gentile authorities, this Jesus is crucified, and even though they've heard a report from the women saying that, no, he, he has risen, just as he said he would, they, and Peter and John ran and saw the empty tomb, still they are afraid. They are afraid, and they're unbelieving. They're behind locked doors. And as we look at a harmony of the Gospels, we see in Luke 24, the, the account of, on the same day, this resurrection day, that Jesus appeared to a couple of the disciples as they were on the road to Emmaus. And Jesus says, why are you, why are you so you know, slow of heart to believe all that the scriptures are written? Of course this was supposed to happen. Everything that you think is, is backwards and upside down and wrong, he says, is so gloriously right. It's so gloriously and wonderfully right. This is exactly what the scripture said would happen. And when they realize that it's Jesus, they, they run and go tell the other disciples. And it's in this room that we find the disciples. The, these Emmaus disciples had already arrived. And there's this discussion going on with the disciples right now about these disciples seeing him on the road. It's in this room that Jesus appears to them. Imagine, imagine the disciples when Jesus boldly walked up to the authorities in the garden and said, who are you seeking? It's me. Take me away. He, he, he didn't run and fight or he didn't, he didn't flee and then, or fight. In fact, he told Peter to put away his sword. He willingly gave himself up, and yet the disciples fled. The disciples were afraid. In fact, Peter denied him. And yet now Jesus, all of a sudden, with the door locked, shows up in their midst. He appears to them. And in all their unbelief and all their fear and abandoning Jesus, he comes and says, Shalom, peace be with you. He doesn't show up and say, how dare you? Do you know what I've just been through? You left me. That's so easy for us to do. I do that all the time, especially in my heart. When I know the, I know the wickedness of my own heart, 
someone does me wrong, like how dare you? Jesus shows up to this crowd of disciples. He says, peace be with you. A.W. Pink says, having put away their sins on the cross, he could now remove their fears. And he shows them his hands and his side. It says they were glad. They said they hadn't believed the report from the women. They, ha- they hadn't, they're still discussing the report from the disciples who were on the, on the way to Emmaus. As we're well, about to get to th- the account of Thomas and Thomas saying he won't believe unless he sees these things for himself. Oftentimes Thomas gets a bad rap, doubting Thomas. And yet the disciples hadn't believed either. And it's not until Jesus comes and shows them his hands and his side that they are now glad. They, they believe. In John 16, as we, as we looked at that a handful of weeks ago, remember Jesus said to them, I'm with you in a little while. I won't be with you and then I will be with you and your sorrow will be turned to joy. They were glad. They were joyful. They see the risen Savior. Like, this isn't, exact, this isn't at all what they expected, and yet it's wonderful. Their sorrow has been turned to joy. There's discussion around Jesus' resurrected body. Obviously, he was horribly tortured even before the cross. There's, there's speculation. There's, I, I, there's, it, it's probably safe to say that the mutilation that had happened to him, that that wasn't all there. But he bore the, the most important signs, the most important scars that he had paid the penalty of sin. Those of the crucifixion itself. The nail prints in his hands and his feet and where the spear pierced his side. He is the lamb who stands as if slain. He is alive and the disciples see this. Like that, that is the man that we saw nailed to the cross. That is not right. No one should ever have the wounds of a crucifixion and be alive and talking to me. The crucifixion is meant to kill, and it did. In our men's Bible study, we were talking about this this last week, the, the idea that's been floated out there, the, what's called the swoon theory, that Jesus just kind of appeared to, to die. <laughs> the Roman soldiers who dealt with the crucifixion were professionals. They were professional murderers, executioners. The the crucifixion is designed to kill. And when they came along to to hasten the the demise of, of Jesus and the two thieves, they came to the thieves and they broke their legs, as we talked about, so that they would more that so that they would suffocate because they couldn't lift themselves up to breathe. And then when they came to Jesus, they realized he was already dead, so they didn't break his knees. But still, just to make sure, 
There's no swooning going on. They pierced his side with the spear and blood and water came forth. So that Jesus stands before his disciples, a man who should have been dead and yet he is alive and their sorrow is turned to joy. And these wounds, these wounds are glorious wounds. He stands before them as the, as the one who had tasted death for them. They're not, they're not wounds to be ashamed of. You kind of maybe literally think of our scars, how we might have some scars that we're ashamed of, but then we have other scars that we say, look how I got this one. I got a story for this one. Well, Jesus had a story for his scars, a glorious, triumphant story. Those scars didn't diminish his glory, but they displayed his glory. Then in verses 21 through 23, we have this commissioning of the disciples. Jesus commissions them to act under his authority. And we have this language of of, uh, forgiving uh, sins and withholding forgiveness. Well, it's important, first of all, for us to realize that No mere man can forgive sins. No mere man can forgive sins. All that we can do, and this is what Jesus is commissioning his disciples, his apostles to do, is to proclaim the forgiveness of sins. And you see this in the the, uh, apostles' teaching. They, They point to Christ. They never say, I have the, they, they never declare themselves to have the power to forgive sins. As we think about Mark and the story of the paralytic and this, this great discussion about who can forgive sins but God alone. And Jesus goes on to prove that he has the power to raise a paralytic up from his mat and the power to say, Child, your sins are forgiven. So as we go forward, as the apostles go forward with the gospel of Jesus Christ, we become ministers of reconciliation. We, in Sunday school, we read from 2 Corinthians 5, and Paul talks about this ministry of reconciliation. And then as in earlier chapters in 2 Corinthians 2, he talks about that we are an aroma. We we go about as as an aroma of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he says, for some an aroma from life to life and others an aroma from death to death. There are no neutral encounters with the gospel. You are not encountered with the gospel of Jesus Christ and left in a place you're like, well, like, he doesn't agree, doesn't disagree. I'm just kind of in the middle. No, you, you either embrace Christ or you reject Christ. This is the beauty of even the picture of the crucifixion. Jesus is in the middle, and then you have two thieves on either side. One rejects him. One joins in the crowd, cursing him. And it actually appears that at one point both did cursing him and denying him, and then one. One says, wait, 
this is the Christ. And he asks him, can I be with you today? Jesus says, yes. I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. Two men probably had the same encounter with Christ. They, their experience is the same. And yet when they come to the point of believing whether he is just a man who should be mocked for dying on a cross, or if he is the Christ, the Son of God, one says he is who he says he is, and the other says he is not. And any time we go about with this, me- this message of reconciliation to a lost world around us, there, we share it with the hope that the person will say, yes, I believe that Jesus is the Christ. I believe that he is the Messiah. I believe that he is my Savior. But there's the other reaction of denying him. That's the forgiveness is withheld unless there's no forgiveness of sins apart from Jesus Christ. You can't find an alternate route. You can't find a plan B. You can't say, God, I appreciate what you did, but I like this way instead. I'm thankful, God, that you accept my way that I think is better. No. God says, pooey, no. Did I just say that? (laughs) No. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. There is one plan of salvation, and there has always been one plan of salvation. It is through faith in Jesus Christ. What's wonderful is as Jesus commissions them, he doesn't, he doesn't leave them just to figure it out on their own. He enables them to do the very thing that he has commanded them to do. And Jesus here, as we know, the Holy Spirit will come on the day of Pentecost as we'll, as we'll look at in Acts 2 when we come to that. And Jesus had previously told his disciples that He had to go to the Father in order to send the Holy Spirit to them. So what Jesus does here is he gives them a prophetic object lesson. Very much like the the prophets of old, Jesus would give them odd things to do. I think I was reading about Ezekiel. Ezekiel had to play with his toys in front, of, in front of the nation as he had a brick and put the name, put Jerusalem on it and then put his siege works up around it and started having war against this brick. He had to lay on his side for a number of days and be bound by a rope and all these different things. Or if you're like Hosea, you had to marry a prostitute. This is a prophetic object lesson that he is giving them. He, he breathes on them. He exe- exhales and he says that he gives them the Holy Spirit. And this is looking forward to what would happen on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2 when the Holy Spirit came. He is not leaving them alone in their service to him, but giving them a helper, a comforter. This is similar to Jesus washing the disciples' feet. 
And he taught as he humbles himself and gets down and washes their feet, and then he talks about cleansing them. Well, it was a picture of him ultimately humbling himself to the point of dying on the cross and cleansing them from their sins. It was an object lesson. This is what he has done here. It's also just an interesting thing as we consider the disciples in this place of fear, as we'll see even a week later, they were still afraid. They're still behind locked doors. It's really not until Acts that we see them spring to life. But you think about Genesis 2, when God creates Adam. He formed him out of the dust of the ground and breathed life into him. Or Ezekiel's vision of the valley of dry bones. God breathes life into them and the bones come together with joint and sinew and muscle and flesh and they become living. It's a beautiful picture. But all of this is, as we know in our passage, all of this isn't witnessed by one of the disciples. Thomas isn't present for this. Let me reread a couple verses, 24 and 25. Now Thomas, one of the 12 called the twin, was not with them. When Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Never really adds a lot to that statement. Unless I see, unless I touch, I will never believe. Now the next verse will say that eight days later, as I said, the next Sunday, Jesus would appear to them again. And presumably, Thomas joined the other apostles, the other disciples. At some point in that week, I would imagine relatively soon, they were kind of hunkering down together. Can you imagine for the better part of a week, Thomas is among the disciples who, who keep saying, Thomas, we saw him. The, the women saw him. We saw the empty tomb. And, and then we, we saw him on the road to Emmaus. And he, told, he explained the scriptures, everything, everything from Moses and the prophets concerning him. The, the whole scriptures about him. And then he appeared to us here. And he, he showed us. He showed us the scars in his hands and his side. Thomas, we saw Thomas says, no, no, I will never believe unless I can see for myself, unless I can touch the wounds, I will never believe. If there, if there is any hope for us who, all of us, have loved ones Neighbors, co-workers who are without Christ, who deny Christ, who have heard the gospel and say, no, I will never believe. If there is any hope for us, this passage gives us such beautiful hope. And, and, and for, for a lot of us, it's that a pain of, that lasts a lot longer than a week. 
It's a pain that can last a lifetime, whether it's parents or children who don't know Christ and not only don't know him, but deny him. If there's anything that should just give us hope and as we get discouraged and think, I just, I just don't think I can share the gospel another time with this person. Every time I'm shut down, every time. Even my prayers, I feel so discouraged in my prayers. Why do I continue praying? Nothing's happening. Well, we serve a Savior who condescends to us. We, we serve a Savior who is willing and glad to come and show us what we need to know. Verse 26, eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. It's a wonderful account because you compare it to just a couple verses earlier and Thomas says, unless I touch, unless I see, I will never believe and Jesus comes, and he doesn't come fully covered up and says, nope, I am not going to let you have what you want. I'm not going to meet those demands, Thomas. You are being obstinate. You're like a mule right now. You better straighten up and just believe. No, Jesus comes and graciously reveals himself. He presents himself and he presents the evidence that Thomas had demanded. Touch, see. And in your touching and your seeing, no longer disbelieve, but believe. Then we have the summit of John's gospel. This is what I believe John, in writing the gospel, was building up to this very point. John couldn't wait to get to what Thomas has to say. And poor Thomas, as I said, we call him Doubting Thomas. His confession of faith here is wonderfully glorious. It is the very thing that John in a few verses is going to say and plead with us. You, you confess just what Thomas confessed. Thomas says, and there's, there's no indication that Thomas even needed to touch Jesus. But in seeing Jesus, Thomas says, my Lord and my God, Think back to the very first verse 
of the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John, in, in painting this, this entire gospel, is filling it with signs and pointing us to that, that Jesus is indeed the Christ, the Son of God. And in this declaration of faith that Thomas makes, he declares Jesus to be not only God, but he recognizes him as the covenant God. We'll look in a second at this word, Lord. But John had, John through this gospel has given us seven kind of major focuses of, of signs that Jesus performed. Everything from him turning the water into wine to, to raising Lazarus from the dead. But then he gives us seven I am statements. And what's significant about the I am statements is, goes all the way back to Exodus 3.14. Where Moses comes and says to God, as God appears to him in the burning bush, Moses says, okay, but when I go back to this people, who do I tell them that you are? Who are you? And God says, tell them I am that I am. And that would become the covenant name for God, the name that he relates to us, Yahweh, I am your God, your Lord, your covenant God. That is who I am. And John gives us these seven I am statements throughout. He says in John 6, this is Jesus, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. In John 8, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In John 10, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and and kill and destroy, and I came that they may have life. And have it abundantly. Again in John 10, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. John 14, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And John 15, I am the true vine. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. John has been building up this this testimony, this witness to who Jesus is and using these I am statements to point back to the great I am of Exodus 3.14, to point back to Yahweh. Like He is saying that the word that is with God And is God, is the great I am, the great Yahweh. 
But when the Old Testament was translated to Greek, and this is uh, what would have been around at this time, the, the, the covenant name of Yahweh was translated to the Greek word Lord, kurios. And that is, that is the word that John uses here. And, and it, it can just be used to say master, like a slave-master relationship. It can be used for that. And the context points us to so much more. The context points us not to that Thomas is simply saying master. Thomas is saying Yahweh, my Yahweh and my God. Thomas had already seen Jesus as a master. He'd followed him around at one point as Jesus is, is heading off to what Thomas thinks is sure destruction. Thomas says, well, let's all go with him. Well, we'll die together. Thomas viewed him as a master of sorts. Now he's saying, though, he is Yahweh, my Lord and my God. He confesses here that Jesus is the great I am, the covenant God of Israel and the God, the true God. But not just that. We talked about this a little bit in Sunday school. I love it when Sunday school and the sermon line up so well. He doesn't just say, Jesus, that's Yahweh. That's the God. That's God. No. He says, my Lord and my God. It's personal to Thomas. Thomas sees the wounds of a crucified Savior, and he says, he died for me. He is not just any God. He is not just the one true God. He is my God. The one who in his covenant faithfulness to the, throughout all the Old Testament proved himself faithful over and over and over again. He is mine. Then Jesus says, and the translations vary here. Some, some make it a, a, this statement, have you believed because you have seen a question. Some make it a statement, you, be, you have believed because you've seen me. Jesus isn't diminishing at all Thomas's confession of faith. But what he does in this next line Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. What he does in that is he speaks to me and you. This is kind of like his high priestly prayer that we studied in John 17, where he's praying for the disciples. And then all of a sudden he turns and says, and not only for them, but for all who will hear their word. That's you and me. That's you and me. He's praying for us. In the upper room. He's praying for us. And here he is blessing us. Here he is saying, my divine favor be upon all those who, although like the, all the disciples who don't have the 
ability, weren't alive in the time and place to see me risen. And as, as we know from 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus appeared to over 500 people. When Paul is writing to the Corinthians, he says, there are some people even alive now who, have, who saw him. There's eyewitnesses. You can go and find them and they can say, yes, I saw him. I saw the holes in his hands. I saw the hole in his side. I saw him eat. I touched him. I talked with him. He's not a ghost. He's not an aberration. He's the risen savior. And yet for those of us who don't have that position and time to see Jesus raised, Jesus says, my divine favor is showered upon you just as if you had seen me. There's, there's many times, I you know, sometimes assume everyone's like me and uh, that's probably wrong. There's some people who've been blessed with just wonderful assurance from the day that they know they came to the Savior to their dying breath. Sweet assurance. And that's something we should all long for. That's something that's possible. We shouldn't live in doubt. And yet we do doubt. And that is normal. It is normal for the Christian to doubt. Don't ever let anyone tell you that as a Christian you can't doubt. There are times of great doubt. And yet we have here in this story, as we see Thomas in his obstinate unbelief, saying he would never see, ne never believe unless he could touch and see. In our time of doubt, we can say, just as Thomas had the opportunity to touch and see, I, because Jesus has said, blessed are you. I can know for a certainty that my Savior died for me, that he rose from the grave, that he ascended on high and he will return. And Jesus tells us in our doubt, do not disbelieve, but believe. Calvin says regarding this passage, we now behold Christ in the gospel in the same manner as if he visibly stood before us. And in some ways, we have something even better. Jesus told his disciples, as they're, as they're like sad, saying, don't leave. Do you have to leave? He says, trust me. It's for your advantage that I go. I go and I'll send my Holy Spirit. And as he, spends, he sends his Holy Spirit and through this Holy Spirit and his apostles, he gives us the full canon of, of God's word. We have God's word that we can open. The, the disciples didn't have this. We have a full collection from beginning to end of what God has told us. Everything pertaining to life and godliness, he has shown us in his word. So even though we can't see and touch we can open and read and we can read about people like Thomas who did get to see and touch and we can believe the testimony of their word so we can cry out along with Thomas, my Lord and my God.
I've referenced verses 31, 30 and 31 a lot because it's John's pur- purpose statement. He says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. As I said, we have the full testimony of Scripture. And John wrote this. Obviously, with a specific audience in mind. But he uses the word you here. I think it's important for us to realize that that you in this passage does, in fact, apply to you and me just as much to the original audience. And John pleads with us as he has just built his entire argument up to show that Jesus is by all his signs and wonders, God Almighty, the Son of God, that he is through all these I am statements, the covenant God of Israel. He says, I've written all of these things down so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. This is, you know, think of Ephesians 2, we are dead in our sins and trespasses. Yet Jesus breathes life into us. He raises a, a dead man who could never do anything in and of himself. He raises him up, brings him to new life so that we can make that declaration of faith, my Lord and my God. I think this passage is so sweet because not only does it talk, it, it talk to our own doubts and our own failures, we'll see a lot more of that next week as, as uh, Jesus has this conversation with Peter. But it's, it should be something that encourages us in our evangelism. As I talked about those relatives who we're so concerned about their salvation, who we've shared the gospel with, who just haven't believed, or maybe it's just the person sitting next to us on the airplane who asks, asks us that question that you just think, oh, okay, we're going to go there. A person who asks you at work, why are you such a hopeful person? And as Peter says in First Peter, be ready to give an answer for the hope that is within you. This is an encouragement for us because you can have someone like Thomas who's so stubborn and yet we know it's not through our strength, our persuasiveness, it's Jesus Christ graciously revealing himself to them that they in, in a seemingly a heartbeat can turn from being an enemy of God, to turn from being an unbeliever to a believer and confess faith in Jesus Christ. It's a wonderful thing when all of a sudden you hear about, you, you, you either see or hear about a loved one coming to faith. And for some, it's like, you say, what? They said, what about Jesus? Praise the Lord. That's amazing. There's such great hope. We can 
without fear, offer Jesus Christ to the world around us that's lost and dying. We don't have to be afraid. Because God will do his perfect work. Yes, for some we are an aroma from death to death. Some will be stubborn in their sin and rebellion to the bitter end. But others may all of a sudden have that sweet aroma of Christ from you and have life and have it more abundantly. I want to finish with a passage out of 1 Peter. If you want to turn there with me, you can. First Peter 1, as Peter's writing to dispersed saints who are suffering, he says to them, starting in verse 9, or verse 6, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. We have not seen him, we have not touched him but his blessing is upon us nonetheless and we can have that same joy as expressed by Thomas. I love him. And I hope you can say, not just that Jesus is God, not just that Jesus is Lord, but that you can say he is my Lord, he is my savior, he is my God. Jesus died for my sins. Jesus rose for my justification. Jesus ascended on high and intercedes even now for me. I hope you can say that. And that is what John and this whole gospel wants you to be able to do is say, Jesus is my Lord and my God. As we turn to the communion table, it's that opportunity where we get to feast spiritually on Christ. I just remind you that this is a, a family meal. This is not something that we do in order to save ourselves. This is not something that we do in order to keep ourselves in God's favor. But this is something that we do out of a celebration because we have confessed faith in Christ. And we get to consider Christ in this and to know that we are united to him, that we are his and he is ours. It's a family meal. We take it together because we realize as we saw so beautifully last week, that fellowship that is ours as we are united to Christ one with another. So if, if you have heard the sermon today and you were in a place where you say, I just, I don't believe that. I can't say that he is my savior. I would just encourage you to allow the elements to pass just so you're not confused in the taking of them. But 
if you are in that place. I would plead with you like John pleads with us. Don't leave here today unbelieving. And as Jesus says, don't be unbelieving, but believe. If you have questions, please talk to me, talk to, talk to Brennan, talk to Sheldon or John, anyone around here, grab them. And if they're not sure, they can point you in the right direction. Don't leave today unbelieving. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation from Community Bible Church. For more information, please visit us at 6005 Edmondson Pike in Nashville, Tennessee, or online at cbcnashville.org.